Greetings to all you folk out there in the world. You are tuning in to Playspace Media's podcast, The Far Center. This is the premiere episode of the Far Center here. Thanks to everybody for tuning in, and we're very excited to lay down some of the ideas and concepts that you could say shape our worldview here. Um, as well, we'll probably lay down some of the backstory and history that has inspired this project. And as the name implies, uh, this is all centered around the concept of place and being rooted or based within the land as the foundation for a guiding narrative. So why don't we just go ahead and start with introductions of us all. I've got my friends here in the room with me. Oh, Kahasach is the name. Don't wear it out. Uh, I was the executive producer of the film Occupied Cascadia, uh, which was an eye-opening experience that I participated in with you two hooligans. I am uh, looking forward to uh, taking my first swing at podcasting here. Uh, and. Uh, participating in a critical thinking brave space uh that's not not just a ideologically driven propaganda machine so it should be fun and i'm looking forward to it right on hey what's up everyone i'm mala so how did i get here i guess i grew up on the edges of rural america um i'm the first generation raised off of a farm but that upbringing sort of gave me a unique front row seat for looking at the problems that span between rural and urban or you know, local and global is we're going to be focusing on if you dig into the deeper layers of it. I mean, it's only come into understanding more recently for me, but those experiences are where my foundation lies. Uh, honestly, all I ever wanted was to live rooted in community and place. But when you start unpacking that simple hope, um, you start to see that there's a lot of barriers in place and conflicts start surfacing sort of from every direction. And I guess that's why I'm here. All right. So my name is Devin, and from an early age, I guess you could say I've been somewhat discontent with offerings of the modern world. Uh, I think a lot of people can agree with me there. Um, there's all types of variables that contribute to that feeling. Um, but something that was always common in my life was that nature felt like it was in some capacity a companion that was there to help guide my direction in one way or another. So whether that's just through the simple joy of finding uh, the simple process of finding joy in the wilderness or discovering deeper truths about the nature of life and the such. Uh, one thing that's always clear is that everything that I've found within the land uh, is just about everything that the modern world is pretty much trying to steer me away from. So that's what has led, I think, a lot of us to starting this project off. Um, and no doubt, I think this project is kind of the vehicle by which we drive forward um, our development as individuals and also the development of a world that we look to create for ourselves. Um, so just as the natural world offers us uh, no promises of safety or survival, it's also our intention to offer you all no such counsel from politically incorrect ideas, you could say. Uh, so we aim to be challenging in our conversations 
and hopefully that will inspire lots of ideas and concepts that allow us to view the world and to also create the world in a way that is very different from what I think the mainstream culture has offered us. So taboo ideas such as like questioning our relationship to violence, abandoning modern culture, embracing inequality and promoting a sense of tribal identity even within ourselves are just like a few of the topics that I think are sure to draw the ire for many. And to that, I guess we would just say that place-based is not a safe space. That's a little meme I'm trying to put out there. Place-based, <laughs> not a safe space. So with that said, we have titled the name of this podcast, The Far Center. And that's kind of been indicative, like, we were kind of pushed that way, actually, you could say, because this is actually like a re-emerging of a project from probably about five years ago in which we first made a film titled Occupied Cascadia. You can find that online. Um, and now here we are, like, we've all gone our own different ways from then, but we're coming back kind of full circle and rediscovering or being re-inspired by um, what we've all learned through that whole process. So I don't know if you guys want to go into that a little bit about like, what is the far center? Why are we even calling this podcast the far center? Cause it's kind of inherently actually an apolitical word in a lot of ways, like in this polarizing world of politics and not even just that they want to, uh, everyone wants to make everything black and white. Like, it's definitely tongue in cheek. Yeah. Um, the polarization of politics in at least the American landscape and you know the European landscape, the only two I'm familiar with, it's gotten to some characteristic extremes. So to create a platform where critical thinking is still coming to the fore and we can disagree with each other and we can discuss, uh, have conversations with people that we do disagree with, I think that's a very, very valuable and crucial aspect to any sane and free society. So the far center, of course, is, you know, ha ha ha, it's kind of a joke. But in, in some ways, um, fending off the extreme ideologies that are, are kind of plugging their ears and just going at some enemy, I think is a, one thing that I want to do. And it, well, one of the experiences that we had with making the film was um, seeing people be deplatformed and, and shut down from speaking their minds and saying their perspectives. And that is something that I'm concerned and it's a growing phenomenon in society. So Intentionally creating brave spaces to have important dialogue is uh, a, a desperate, desperate need at this time, and I'm I'm dedicated to it myself. Right on, yeah. Um, and I would generally agree with that to you. And yeah, and I think we all actually don't probably agree with each other all the time, but there is kind of a foundational level that we've all reached about place in general being, like I said, that guiding narrative for us that we're that it kind of speaks to us and. It, everything kind of spirals out from there, you know, and it is a very apolitical idea in a lot of different ways. I think that was something that, that really drew me to the notion of place, um, was that no people exist in like a homogenous bubble of thinking patterns. You know, if you think of what a folk people is, like there's going to be people that think more in, in what we now have been limited to being right wing concepts or left wing concepts. And, and we live in a really toxic society where people are trying to pave entire worlds and, and cultures based on one ideology. And I think that place really makes us get back to that sane perspective of we have to learn how to live with each other and we have to learn how to have conversations with each other um, because conflicts are a natural part of human society. Like it's, there's, there's lessons to be learned through the conflicts that we do. And so I think that that's something that really, when we first got started with the film, the Occupy movement was just launching. Um, and so that's something that we had some crossover with initially, but it was also really apparent very rapidly through that process that, um, even back in 2011, identity politics were starting to surface as the forefront. And so what started as a movement was people from all different walks of life rapidly eroded to just ridiculous fighting. Um, and, and that was a interesting process. And then as we proceeded forward with our film and a little bit of involvement in the place-based or Cascadian bioregional awareness, um, energy that was happening at the same time, um, we, we saw those, those same things happen. I mean, even just some of the people that we had in the original film, you know, they, they were really controversial figures and they, we had to have 
trigger warnings at some of the screenings, which was a whole new concept for me. And I mean, trying to go to meetings with different with different groups and urban centers and having to identify our genders and, and having to work <laughs> through this whole process. Like as someone coming from rural America, that was that was something different. And I went along because I was fine with it. Like I Yeah. But it was just it, it was just interesting as I as we watched it further and further to grade up to kind of the culminating point where we all took a break. Yeah, I went along with it too because I didn't even really understand. I was I consider myself really naive back then with the whole process and absolutely I was just following my heart with the whole things and the passions of just like oh yeah here's Cascadia and like my freedom and stuff like there's kind of a libertarian <laughs> idealism for me with with it all and so then to get thrown into like this like so-called radical like identity politics with it all was super like I was thrown off by it all and I, was, I didn't even know what to think I couldn't even critique Marxism at the time probably I barely even knew what any of the stuff was and I was just learning about the people that we were interviewing too um, so to come back full circle and like have a lens on that to reflect on all that it's a very interesting thing and like I feel like I've got a much better understanding now about that whole process for myself all right. My perspective was, I'd say, quite different. I was, I would say, I was politicized at a young age. I was uh, moved, uh, left Central Oregon and moved up to Seattle in the wake of the 1999 WTO Seattle, uh, the Battle of Seattle mm-hmm. anti globalization protests, and that opened my eyes. I had no idea what was going on at that time, and I learned about politics and fell in with definitely a a left libertarian very much that anarchism was in vogue at the time and um there was you know america was fresh out of communists after the civil war so that was my orientation and in some ways it's it still definitely informs my perspective on things um i if you know you look into history and look at the combat between fascism and communism and uh the spanish civil war comes up and i always sided with the anarchists and in barcelona they were the ideals you know fighting off uh the tyranny of stalin on one side and the tyranny of franco on the other and and in some ways they're becoming more and more my heroes once again um and of course they that they didn't it didn't end well for them and uh in some ways more than some ways i see these politics these old ghosts re-emerging and and history starting to repeat itself now and i'm interested in being clear about that in my own personal experience and in trying to bring forth a perspective that i do have i you know i got became interested in bioregionalism because it it seemed to be this sensible idea that brought in an ecological perspective a place-based sanity to the feeling of alienation and the feeling of anger that I had against what I would call capitalism, which I, you know, see as being the history of colonialism. And if you have that critique, you're usually welcomed by the left. And, and I was, and I'm, you know, I don't consider myself right wing and I'm don't consider myself left wing either. And the place-based indigenous perspective is something that kind of got taken off the shelf and, as popular discourse continues, it seems like it's it, that's being drowned out. And there's definitely a perspective that I want to revive that is uh, common to the understandings of most of the indigenous people the world over. And I think that this is going to be a great a great platform for that. And moving on in the future, to to I would like to be more and more vocal about that myself. Yeah, I think that's kind of a big part of why we're all here and. Um, we've all got our different backgrounds of like how we've come to that understanding. I guess I've always personally used place as a means to kind of just make sense of the world and my, my own place within it, you know? So that's to find a mean, find meaning in life, like in the quest for truth, right? Because I think nature ultimately reveals truths to us, or at least it's a really big part of that story. And, you know, where we find ourselves at any given point in time is something that, I think is meaningful or at least it should have meaning and you know because what's involved is like a whole entire story and it's like like you kind of said it's like history is repeating itself in a lot of ways yeah, definitely. and I do see that like this is a cyclical process of us kind of coming back around and wondering like well we we think identity is important right and and the empire of you know America or whatever this globalist empire in a lot of ways like doesn't really offer us 
uh, fulfilling sense of identity. Like it's trying to homogenize everybody into kind of one centralized force that says that like, well, if you all kind of house yourself, wave, you know, one nation under God or whatever it might be, that, that everything is going to be good. That's the progressive thing to do. That's how we're going to eliminate evil in the world and things like that. So there's many layered complexities of place, you could say. Um, and that that can range anywhere from like our rational understandings to like how watersheds function. And that's like a very scientific type of thing. And then there's also kind of a mythical component as well that includes humanity and our own telling of stories that help us weave together narratives that kind of guide us and give us meanings. And that stands really in contrast to to Americanism or to the nation state as it is or as most people know things to be. Well, I mean, the thing is, I'm going back to what you said about identity. I started out thinking that identity wasn't important. It was a silly thing and people were getting hung up on it. And what's important is, is the practical things in life is, you know, being able to have food and shelter and all these things. And the economic system, in my opinion, of the modern world was taking that away from people. It wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. And just getting back to that was all I was concerned about. But I definitely learned the importance and power of identity as just an inescapable thing that I needed to come to terms with and everybody had to come to terms with that. And it's it's not an easy thing and it's it's kind of writ large across the culture right now is identity wars. And so for me, in making a film about this particular place, and I can say it's the place where I was born, the place, my native home that I was connected to, and by the time uh, I was kind of burnt out on the activism. I up and left the country. I, I I left for Europe on a one-way ticket. I was going to go live in Ireland. And I knew that I couldn't stay, but I went anyway. And, um, you know, I'm back here for political reasons, but not because I want to be. Um, which is just, it's just a funny twist to the story. And, and me coming to terms with that aspect, my desire to be connected to a place hasn't gone away. And I do have connections to Ireland and I've, I've gone out of my way to attempt to learn the language, which is a slow and steady process and learning the history of, well, my family came from Ireland a few generations back and I still have living relatives over there. So <laughs> that, uh, I don't have the, I don't know who the heck I am settler problem. I have the, oh, I know who I am and yeah, I'm a settler and this is a stupid country and I'm leaving. Um, which like I said, it's not that simple. So uh, the complexity of identity and the complexity of my own individual narrative and connecting with other people's narratives and, and learning the indigenous history of this place in North America, Cascadia, Turtle Island, um, you know, learning the stories of the nations here and the struggle of survival for the languages and the cultures, that began to become the context that I found myself in. And my identity was no longer an arbitrary thing. And I found a sense of empowerment in knowing who I am. And it seems like that is a deep psychological necessity for people. And it's also a minefield to navigate. And so hopefully my own story, as it becomes something that I tell, is a can be a, a, a weapon or an asset uh, a helping hand in other people the more the more we can put forward our own sane narratives of who we are and our identities the less our lack of identity can act like a wounded beast and mm-hmm. tend to lash out which i see happening on from every basically every perspective every society right left this and that like oh. people are not doing well with who they are and their attempt to cling to who they are often becomes weaponized and it you know, it's not helping create a sane society for people and the children of the future to be born into. Yeah. That's something I totally agree with. One of the um, most oppressive aspects of globalism from my perspective is that it's tried to force us all into one agreed upon story. And, you know, I think that a lot of the conflicts in our society stem from various groups trying to reclaim those various aspects of their storytelling. Um, And, and you know it's we're we're in a nation here in the United States we're in a nation of identity crisis because we don't all fit into the same story and we're not you know even even for the european the the story as it's told may not exactly align with our blood wisdom and lived experiences and um 
coming into conflict with that and, and starting to understand that there's more going on in our stories. You know, we spend a lot of time in indigenous communities and we'll go into that in future episodes in more depth. But, you know, one of the big things that I repeatedly experienced in those communities was that they, they continually told me to find my roots. And I was with, I'm with Casey. I didn't really think identity was so important back then. You know, I was passionate and I wanted to make the world a better place, but hindsight, you know, digging into my roots and learning where I come from and how it is that each of my peoples got to be on this side of the world was one of the most empowering experiences of my life. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that I'm, I'm really inspired. And I know that a lot of us here at Place-Based Media are, are, are inspired to, to help people learn how to decipher, to reclaim their own story. You know, we live in an era where reclaiming sovereignty over our storytelling is pretty necessary to outcreate globalism and, you know, reclaiming our stories back from globalism. It's going to be ugly and it's imperfect. And we can see that all around society. But I, I really hope that like the braver space that we're going to create here provides a little bit of of a little bit of groundwork for for helping that happen yeah so place in a way is kind of it's the framework i would say that allows us to rediscover our identity in a lot of ways because like you said you tried to move back to ireland and i've had through my own like learning of who i am who my ancestors were all the way back to germany and switzerland like no doubt that kind of incites a little bit of a nostalgia of like how things used to be and you think like, oh, if I could just like live that way, like connected to my homeland, connected to my ancestors and all that, like what a beautiful thing that would be. And then the reality of that is that it's like, well, no, I'm right here. And so what does that mean? Like, well, it means you got to start laying down roots right here. And that's got all types of problems and difficulties in it because, well, one, we don't have kind of the sovereign capacity in a specific location to do that because everybody's kind of being driven economically and politically by this kind of overarching empirical system that is saying like, like, no, you don't really get to go off on your own and do your own thing. Like you got to abide by all these different rules and it makes it very challenging for anybody to have that autonomy over themselves and to really start kind of developing a culture for themselves. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for. It's like they want an authentic experience that is like, of their own creation in a lot of ways, right? Right. I mean, you can you can be materially successful in this country if you put your mind to it and if you're willing to be competitive, but only on the terms of neoliberalism, only on the terms of fitting into what myself and most people I know consider a spiritually empty existence. Mm-hmm. And it's uh it's that hollowness, you know, Carl Jung writing about modern man in search of a soul. It's only gotten worse since he wrote the book. And, you know, soon enough we'll be 100 years on. And, geez, the politics of the 2030s are shaping up to look like the 1930s all over again. And uh, there's going to be some, there needs to be some more responsibility taken on the part of people who are seeing seeing reality for what it is here. And it's it's a challenge, but it needs to be faced. Yeah, I would say like we're starting to get kind of more into the meat of it here too in terms of what the differences are between what we would probably call a place-based consciousness versus a globalist consciousness. And I think like that's a really important thing to start breaking down in a lot of ways because we've got like the idea from a larger scale that like, oh, we're we're all one people or whatever. We're all one humanity and we're a part of the earth as a whole. And that's all true and everything, but we're also a part of something else like we're a part of a specific race and we're a part of a specific location on the planet and that drives uh very different types of thinking when you really start looking at it it's like like even further from being a part of like cascadia like i'm a part of bend oregon and i'm a part of the upper deschutes river and you can go even further than that it's like well i'm a part of the city block that i live on or i'm a part of the little the space that i grew up in that's like has very specific kind of uh, ecological aspects to it, like like specific trees in it that are very different from someone that lives even, you know, 20 or 30 miles away. And so you've got this kind of, there's an importance to scaling identity, I think, that kind of cuts to the heart of it in a lot of ways, which is like, yes, we are, a, I am a human and I'm a part of the earth, but I'm also a part of 
kind of a tribe. I'm a part of my group of friends and we all develop our own kind of ideologies and our own stories out of understanding those different layers of humanity. And it's kind of an unavoidable thing in a lot of ways, right? Uh, it's, uh, that's a, a massive, massive topic. And, you know, many of the words you said are, are landmines that I don't even want to step on. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, like how do, how do we... Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's, it's, but that's... <laughs> don't be sorry. Don't be sorry at all. It's, it's great. Um, I, you know... I'm ready to live in a way where I don't critique every word that comes out of somebody's mouth. I want to hear, you know, what, what people are, what are saying from the heart. And certainly I, what I resonate with most is, um, you know, uh, Dene scholar, Glenn Coltard, um, up in Canada wrote a short essay called place against empire, understanding indigenous anti-colonialism. And, I didn't even need to read the essay, right? <laughs> like yeah. I have, it's good. Um, but that explained everything. That's that explained the way I saw the world. It was, you know, our our sane ability to self-determine ourselves as a community. What however we define that. Mm -hmm. But historically it's been defined and experientially it, it's defined through the course of our lifetimes and the people we meet and the places we live. And at the end of the day, there's usually a force, an economic force with its own driving ideology, attempting to uproot us, keep us uprooted, and prevent us from creating a sane, sensible world. A sane, not a world, but a sane, sensible society just outside my front door. You know, I, I, I can worry about what's on the news and, and all the horrible things going on in the world that I see in the media. But if I can't even, you know, if I can't even keep my room clean, I can't even feed myself, I can't pay my rent, then what is the force doing that? And to me, it was always an economic one. And it's, it's the form of capitalism that exists, which is, you know, far from the fairy tale version of capitalism mm -hmm. that we might idealize or are taught to idealize in the first world. And so to me, that was, that was key. Like, why, why is the, my ability to just make a simple, sane life for myself, let alone the generations that will be coming into the world, such a difficult thing, seemingly impossible thing. And, you know, I got angry. I was angry. My generation was angry. We were in the streets exchanging projectiles with the police. Like that, that's how, I, you know, turned 20 years old was seeing that happening. And I don't, you know, it's not an invalid experience. It was real. There was something going on. And um, I felt that there were answers and explanations and getting to the root of it was always the ability to be self-determined, to self-manage, mm -hmm. to, to take care of your community as a community, which is, you know, a difference between just the individual um we're sort of given this mass collective identity versus a, a individualist identity. And in mm -hmm. reality, it is you live in a specific place. We all drink water from Bridge Creek up on the hill here or from, you know, the groundwater. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's we drink from the same watershed. We should be able to eat from the same local food shed. And, of course, most of the food that we eat. These days, it, you know, statistically, it doesn't even come from within 100 miles. And that consciousness was definitely something coming up in my generation is, you know, how can you talk about sovereignty if you're not food sovereign? How can you talk about, you know, you know, self-control and, and self-rule if you can't, you know, take care of the basic necessities of life? Yeah. And the answer is you can't. And my perspective became to clearly state that, we have become dependent and any any good abuser makes you dependent on them and the the culture was you know i began to see that as predatory and that that hasn't changed you know whatever however i try to place an ideology on that you know that's my basic ground experience yeah nail on the head i think with that because there's a lot of people that would say that would disagree with you and that they would say that this culture this modern culture is like the greatest thing like look how good everything is but but i do think that veneer is wearing off on people a little bit because you, they see the health epidemics you know there is a localist food movement growing throughout the united states and the world where people understand that that's an important thing to be able to eat from the place where you are and 
and just people are getting sick left and right. You know, cancer is like crazy right now. Like it seems like, like if you don't know someone that has cancer, like you're in a bubble or something, you know? So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a big thing. It's like self-determination and all that. Like that is kind of the contrasting thing of like what it means to be a local versus a globalist. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the reasons that when we got involved in kind of the ecological space of bioregional thinking, um, that it was, that it was such a sensitive issue because by and large people are waking up to the realities of globalism and the scale. You know, I've been involved with local farmers and ranchers for over a decade here. Um, and it's something I've been really passionate about is local food systems and, and continually, you know, you, you run back into, the larger systems that you're a part of, you know, the cost of living in Bend, Oregon isn't, isn't the result of the strength of our economy or what we're producing here locally. It's, de it's determined by large urban mega cities like San Francisco and Seattle and New York. Um, and, and, you know, I, my, my childhood was split between Montana and Oregon. And so you, the same thing is happening all across the rural American West. And I hear stories from Appalachia, the same thing happening there with people from the Northeast moving down South. And, you know, then you're into those ur urban rural conflicts and those, and those situations, but there's more going on about it. And, you know, we can't, we can't work towards effective change in our communities without confronting this larger globalist political economy that's being imposed everywhere. And that's something that I think is so interesting because globalism tends to be a common complaint that comes out of both the far left and the far right. But yet there's so many, there's so much control over the narrative that keep those groups from talking on with intent from my perspective. Well, do you think globalism is an ideology? Cause one of the things I've noticed is I started out with the anti-globalization movement and now globalism, it's, it's almost this reified, has it become like a religion or something because people that's not always a negative association it's it's the promise of something isn't it well yeah and i mean i think i think in some ways it's it's a better reclaiming of what of what we're up against that rootedness versus unrootedness being a central tenet because you know capitalism like you could say we live in a capitalist society but all the costs of industry are externalized in the society things how regulations are set up through the neoliberal state tends to tends to empower the externalization of those costs. Like we don't actually live in a free market by any means. Like this market is heavily manipulated for a particular outcome. So I think that globalism is, is a new perspective for trying to frame, for trying to frame these larger systems that we're up against because. Was, well, is globalism empire? Are those two words interchangeable? From my perspective, very much so. Yeah, I but I guess so at the too. <laughs> that's I mean that's how I would use the word. I wouldn't say yeah. globalism if I didn't mean the empire, and yeah. the empire is now disembodied capital that is not tied yeah. to any place. And I would say it's an ideology, like absolutely, like it is a seed that is in people's mind that that they are trying to create, and and it's really abstract in a lot of ways too. Like it, it manifests itself in all these just ways that like aren't actually rooted in reality of how like anything within nature functions. Right. It's, it's hard to talk about even. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, I think it's also like, it's a cultural landscape. It's the, it is the dominant cultural landscape. You know, it's, it's so interesting. Like so much about the dominant culture is, Oh, this is the European cultural landscape. But when you start to look at it, it's actually, no, this is the, universalist humanist cultural landscape where like we live in a culture where we don't want to offend anybody like you're not going to have authentic experiences in a culture in a multicultural society where you don't want to offend people that's where that's where you end up with mcdonald's and walmart's because nobody's going to be offended by our universal consumerism and i think that that's something that most people in this country are are, are really fed up with and we're kind of wearing out and that's why we're seeing so many yeah. tensions increasing yeah, I think like it might go without saying, but you could say the purpose of life, at least for myself, is to exist within a state that is conducive for my development and allows me to thrive as an individual. And that's clearly then what I would also want for my tribe as well. And, you know, reach our potential, right? And I think like empire or modern civilization as it is, is kind of the antithesis of that. Like it's not 
allowing people to do that. And that's why the veneer of like what they project themselves to be is kind of wearing off for people because they're seeing that like, no, this is really challenging. Like I'm, I don't have these opportunities to actually like to actually evolve as a human or whatever it might be, you know, at least reach my potential. And, um, was that, so is that a state of being or a nation state? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you said uh, to exist in a state, and I was like, "Oh yeah, a state of being." Like, oh, yeah. oh wait, no, wait a state. <laughs> Which <Yeah>. one? <laughs> it's it's the state of being for sure. <laughs> it's funny because like I was actually I went to England when I was a kid. It's funny that you say that. And one of those like uh, Raj Vanish guys, whatever uh, Alibaba, I don't even know. Like, was selling <laughs> books on the on on the street. And um, he came up to me. He's like, "Oh, are you from the states, man?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm from I'm from the states." He's like, "I'm from a state too." I'm like, "Oh, well, what state are you from?" He's like, "The state of confusion." And then he tried to like sell me some book for five pounds about yoga or something, and I think I actually bought it. Ah, uh, you're such a yank. <laughs> totally on me, but yeah. So state, I'll clarify that because that can go lots of different ways, I suppose. I was um, just curious. <laughs> yeah, but like, so recognizing too that, like, within place, like, we talk about the conflict and all that that can arise from, uh, from people wanting to kind of assert themselves, um, in their own way, you know? Uh, people express themselves in a lot of different ways and they evolve differently. And that's the thing about place is that, like, when you're not a part of this homogeneity of this nation state in a way, like everybody self-determines within their own locale. And that does mean conflict in a lot of ways because not everybody's going to evolve in the same way or they're not all going to come to the same conclusions as like what is right for them as a tribe or as an individual um, in terms of like what they want in the world. And globalism is offering one thing it's saying like this is what we want and it's like pretending that it's so-called progressive or whatever but people are seeing what the results are of that and they're not buying it i think like we're definitely not buying it well there i mean there's no such thing as place with a capital letter right there's places there are the places of the world that we exist in yeah and you know i think what would you say i i wasn't it, yeah, Jeanette Armstrong, when we interviewed her for the film, she said specifically, place is, well, culture is a response to place. So the cultures, cultures evolving in place is what defines culture, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I was, I come across the word mono-multiculturalism, which, it sounds crazy, it was in a, a book on bioregionalism by Mark Carr, and it, in some ways, people say multiculturalism, and it sounds great. And I've, you know, I appreciate Gaelic culture, and I'm, you know, learning as much about it as I can. And I enjoy that there are other cultures. I feel most empowered when I'm around native cultures and and other cultures that have that contrast. And so I feel like I like multiculturalism, but it feels like there's another underlying meaning to multiculturalism. And when I saw the word mono multiculturalism, something clicked. I was like, Oh, it's the, it's not actually about all the cultures of the world surviving in the face of empire. It's about, I don't even know what it is like mono multiculturalism. You have to, you know, twist your tongue to say that, to try to understand kind of a sneaky backdoor move that's happening through, you know, what seems to be cultural imperialism. Am I am I am I right? Can you correct me? Absolutely. I totally agree with what you're saying. You know what it's one of the examples of toxic mimicry. Like what they're what people that are promoting globalism and multiculturalism are saying doesn't necessarily align align with what the results are creating. And I think that that's something that the left really needs to reconcile. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not a rightist either, but I that, that is a critique that I came across. Yeah, I think, well, I think it just plays into, like, back to these abstract concepts that that are being promoted upon people. That's, like, they're trying to say it's one thing, and it speaks to a lot of people because it's got these, like, warm and fuzzy feelings of, like, somehow being progressive and making the world better. But the consequences of it, like, when it's not actually rooted in re- reality, when it's not rooted in nature and how people actually function in the world, then the consequences... I think are proving to be a really 
bad thing. Like, I mean, we could look at egalitarianism, for example, you know, like, or, or the notion of equality in terms of like what that looks like in a society. And the reality is, is that there is not a single example in all of nature that equality is, is an aspect of anything. Like it doesn't exist. Right. So, well, I mean, how has that, how has that concept evolved from, you know, the, the French concept of egalité that, you know, it was a, it was an enlightenment concept and at a time when there was extreme differences politically between people and has that word been twisted in your opinion? Is there, because there's something initially like, yeah, equality, I, I, something, I believed in anarchy and equality and now I, I, okay, how has, how has that word evolved? Do you see that word itself changing? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's, the delineation of like equal opportunity doesn't mean equal outcome. I just think of me, I have three sisters. I think of just within my family, like we all had the same opportunities coming out of the household in one sense, but we didn't make our lives the same. Like we have very different outcomes, um, even class, class class-based outcomes, differences, you know, like it's just, we're all unique individuals and we have to navigate in this world. Like, I think that that's something that globalism is is like constantly it's trying to break human nature you know it's trying to unroot us it's trying to it's trying to make us all have equal outcomes and that's going to require the erosion of all people's cultures and places for that to ever become a, a realized reality and I don't think that I think that that's something we all need to stop and talk about because when you look at the state of identity crisis, like perhaps, perhaps identity is more important than we're understanding. And, you know, that's what, that's, I guess one of the reasons that I was drawn back to come back to this bioregional awareness project is just because, you know, I see the potential that I see the potential in it that to, to promote play space and being rooted, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't try to break the human nature. It tries to work within our potential. It honors human nature and that we're going to, you know, it accepts, it accepts humans as they are. And in that way, like it directly resists the need to control humanity, which I think is in direct opposition to. Yeah. It's not abstract. It frames everything with like the known reality that there are limitations within what even maybe our prog like what we think of progress, like, cause I think progress is thought of or promoted as something that just has no end for people that we can somehow like evolve, like exponentially forever and that like we'll become like robots or something in outer space. And that's like the ultimate (laughs) goal is to live forever for people. And we see the consequences of even that concept of progressivism taking hold in the form of like transhumanism and things like that. And madness of the astronaut or something like that. Yeah. There's all types of dystopic things, stories about that. But uh, I would argue even too, that there's not even such a thing as equal opportunity because just by the very nature of people being born differently and having different traits and different abilities that nobody even has the same opportunity. Like how can, like, I guess you can have like the opportunity, but like, it's very clear that like the result of that is going to look very different for everybody. So I don't know, that's a little bit more philosophical in a lot of ways. And that's kind of, well, I mean, so like life and people, uh, you know, the humans are already incredibly diverse and life is already incredibly complex. So do you see an attempt to flatten everything out as, as backdoor imperialism? Like that's just an idea that keeps coming. It's, it's it's a backdoor. It sounds good, but there's actually, it's actually a recolonization or a colonization, a a backdoor imperialism of, yeah. Well, it doesn't sound good to me. I see, but I see why people could think it might sounds good because it's got promises of like of of like utopianism with it right sure yeah i mean i'm I'm very and i'm very familiar at this point with the critiques of of egalitarianism it's come to the fore i've been you know listening to jordan peterson's talks lately and he's incredibly well he's he's a canadian liberal classical liberal right but now all of a sudden like the right hates him the left hates him and he's just saying no actually life is complex and 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 he's upset everyone you know sure i think that that's probably an indication that you're doing something right right like i mean 
if both the left and the right are pretty angry at you, which I have a hunch might be our case soon enough, like that's in from my perspective, you're asking the right questions. I I mean, I think I think that that's happening. There's there's definitely a backlash happening in public discourse when it comes to attempting to silence any anything that's controversial and people people need to hear it that's being supported it's being you know you're not the, the attempt to silence is backfiring on a on a very major scale right now and that might be a very healthy thing for life yeah <laughs> is there like can we talk a little bit more about place specifically like because there's mythical connotations i think and i don't know like yeah, I don't know if we could go into some of that because it's like, well, first of all, like, where are we personally? Because we've mentioned Bend, Oregon specifically, but like, I don't know. Talk about that a little bit. Like, where are we? What does it mean to you? And because we could kind of wrap it all up of like, like, why is it important? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so we threw out the word bioregionalism, right? Like, what's that? It's another ism. Like, <laughs> so bioregion itself translates to life place. To live bioregionally is to live rooted in place. You know, we focus on place because we feel that it's integral in bringing awareness to the most necessary elements that interweave life. And like the characteristics of place itself are birthed out of the infinitely complex layers. You could say between like the geomorphology and the biotic communities. And, you know, biotic communities includes humans as as inhabitants of, of a place. Um, borderlands between places, like, like they don't exist as square and governable lines on a map. Um, but they're molded by the forces and relationships that shape place itself, you know, canyons and mountains and waterways and even vast open lands. They all have their own role in shaping the spaces for shared inhabitation or necessary boundaries. And, you know, that, that, that's something that's pretty easy for most people to understand, you know, people shape place just as place shapes people. And, you know, cultures are embedded into those landscapes and, and necessary boundaries exist. Yeah. And I would just say too, that like, as much as yeah, as much as we shape the land, the land also shapes us as well, and that's something that that takes place obviously over a long period of time. But it's also something that can happen like within an individual's life. You know, they're drawn to the na- to nature. They're maybe they have a specific tree or something. Or if you're raised somewhere with like a tree that like grows as you grow and things like that. And like for me, there's just there's always kind of a sense of awe within all of that that it kind of comes back to the fact that like, well, we don't control everything. Um, this land is a very powerful thing that is writing its own story through, through its own means. And no matter like how much we think we can kind of dominate over that and extract resources, like it could crack at any single moment and, and suck us into a hole or a volcano could explode and wipe <laughs> us out. Or as we know with Cascadia and, and the Cascadian fault line, the tsunami could come and totally alter the shape of the coastline and and just change everything. Um, you know, I like to say that land commands the master plan. It's like no matter how might your or no matter how right your might is, like ultimately the land is going to be the deciding factor on how you set up your entire life. Like based on what resources are available to you, based on the geological landscape, um, it's going to dictate what you do. Like, and so what we see with modern culture is it's trying to, it's trying to rise above that. It's trying to say like, we are the ultimate of everything and, and we can somehow like dominate this and we can be better than, than what has been offered to us. Right. And I mean, obviously civilizations collapse and I think this one's on its last legs too. So they're probably in for a rude awakening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But then, so where are we? Well, I mean, my relationship to places, I was I was born here, so I never felt I was entitled to any other place in the world, and I suppose I took that for granted. Um, I didn't, I didn't like, you know, I don't know, something. I felt like an imposer from the outside. I, I moved off to Seattle and Portland when I was young, and. There was a sense of like ah, I'm not from here. I don't really have a say. I don't really have a right. And I came, I moved back home with the intention of you know connecting to the place where I was born in a ecological way. I was, you know, being politicized through what was happening around me and, and reading and trying to understand um, why the world felt so wrong. And 
it seemed like connecting to an actual place was the only well it was the best way to find an authentic spiritual fulfillment and in in reality i definitely was able to get out away from you know civilization and found a very fulfilling experience in the contrast between being out in the wild and being back in the craziness of the city was just a obtuse juxtaposition and it was you know nothing i, I wanted to go camping and never come back and the more I uh, wanted to be able to just, you know, get out and live off the land was an ideal. I had definitely daydreamed about getting a, you know, a cabin in the woods and just hunting or fishing or something like that. And um, But the more I realized that the technicalities of, of just living on your own, living off the land was almost impossible given the fact that the, you know, decimation of the fish in the river, like the salmon runs have been beyond decimated. And the, I mean, yeah, the hunting's still good here um, compared to other places in the world. But I realized that the land had been nearly, nearly destroyed. And that I was also not living in a place where my ancestors had been for thousands of years and met native people who are you know where the we live on on treaty land like this is this is a the basis for law and my existence here as a citizen is based on a treaty signed just in 1855 not long ago and i as much as i you know loved this place there was still something just wrong and my answer for why the world is wrong was colonialism and the narrative of colonialism informed me that my people were displaced from our land through colonialism and I I went back. I found the wherewithal to say, you know what, I'm 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 not doing this. The reason why everything feels weird is because I live in a settler colonial outpost with an empty culture, and I I decided to go back to the graves of my ancestors that they had left, and they're still there. And um, it's it's a, it was a definitely a rewarding thing, and I'd say the most spiritually fulfilling thing I've I've done, and. Gosh, it's 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 complex. I I don't have a right to citizenship over there, so I'm back over here and continuing to learn the language and doing what I can to help. Well, not help. I mean, to reconnect to my sense of sanity the best I can find it. And so for me, the connection to places is complex. There's not just one particular answer. There's the complexity of of reality and it doesn't hand me personally an ideology to beat anyone else over the head with. I, it's, it's a story. Like my life is just the story that I can tell. And my story is similar with some people and very dissimilar with other people. And there's an affinity, affinity that I can, you know, take sustenance from with, with other people and sharing our stories. And I think that's, that's just the, the basic process of like bringing our stories together and realizing that, yeah, things aren't okay. Things have gone wrong. There's deep, deep trauma in the past and, and deep, deep trauma that's hidden under the surface of everyday life. And being brave enough to call it out for what it is and to speak our own truth is, I think, something I just want to be able to encourage in other people and continue doing myself. And that's the complexity of place. All, you yeah. know, just you just want to go fishing sure. and be left alone and all of a sudden you're picking apart Western civilization. Do you have anything Ab to add to that, Mel? Absolutely. I mean, I guess still just for, for our listeners to situate us better, like from my perspective, so we, we're in the Pacific Northwest of North America in a place that is often referred to as Cascadia. You know, we're in, we live in Oregon. Um, we're in the Deschutes Basin, which is a tributary of the Columbia Basin. Um, and so that we're connected to all the people that live across that watershed. And so, you know, we're in a place that there's nowhere left to go. Like if you look at the history of Europeans, um, which is all that I can ancestrally speak for, um, you know, we, we were chased to every corner of the planet. Like, yeah, there's an aspect of European conquest, but then there's also this whole other story on the underside that we're not allowed to talk about something that's been intentionally eroded from the dominant narrative. Um, you know, so I see like, we're also in Cascadia. It's the place with nowhere left to go. Like there's nowhere left to run to, to escape this globalism. Like you can't just go live in the woods any in anywhere and just live that life like there's other 
you know, the, if you try to just go do that in Homestead or something like that, like the, the lawman's going to come and arrest you. They're going to kick you off the land. Like it's, those aren't, that's not a reality anymore. So like here we are in Cascadia, like we're up against an ocean. I like to say that we're up against an ocean with dreams that won't let us rest. Like we're in this fiery volcanic center and that influences the community in this place tremendously. I mean, this is a passionate place. Like they have beer for dogs. Like it does not matter what people are into. So what's wrong with it then? (laughs) (laughs) Then, I mean, if you want to spend $5 for a bottle of beer for your dog, like have at it. Um, Although I've seen many dogs that won't touch the stuff. So, but like, it's, it's a passionate place. And like, that's to, to start learning about where we are and retelling our stories. Like a big part of, you know, I think a big aspect that we're dealing with as a broader society is like cultures and mythology aren't just in the past. Like it's, it's a continual thing in living motion. It's like the need to re-mythologize our lives, kind of rooting ourselves in time and space is really prominent. And like, we need stories to help us make sense of our lives. And so I guess that's one of the reasons that I'm super inspired to help start bringing about this language of place, because it's really simple, but it also speaks to the deeper, the deeper parts of all of human history. I mean, not just like what we would consider modern indigenous peoples to this day, like even for our European ancestors, like we lived in place um, up until the imposition of the globalist political economy onto our homelands. And, you know, if you think of the geography, uh, the geography of Europe, like the cultures of the Rhine from the headwaters to the estuary, like those are very different, distinct cultures. And they were each a response of their specific place and so starting to find new ways especially for those for for us Europeans that are on this side of the world like I don't want to be a victim of globalization I want to be proactive and that means that I need to find a way to move forward with where I am and honoring where I am like I I was drawn into Cascadia and I've tried to run away from this place so this place won't let go of me like recognizing (laughs) like recognizing that the land has has its own part and we you know, we as humans have the potential to become like we're living characters within places story. Yeah, I think the idea of like self-creation actually kind of comes up for me. And what you guys said with stories kind of hits it home. Like people's stories of place like actually helps make sense of their own creation. And that's not really an irrational concept at all like to understand how land itself can be a central point of our guiding worldview. Like it's, it's the axis mundi, right? And it's a very spiritual and religious thing. And, but it's also very literal and it's also observable in that the land literally does create us. Like if we allow it to, whether that's through the foods that we eat or our relationships to, to a, a river or a stream or like whatever it might be, you know, the cycles of death and decay, rebirth and life, so like that Axis Monday, I think it's usually expressed as like a centralized point, like a tree or a mountain or something that's ritualistic. Um, but all other meanings kind of spiral out from there. Like place is the centralized kind of foundation from which our worldview develops. And that ultimately is what gives us direction in life in a lot of ways. Um, so from there, I think we can actually probably wrap it up and unless you guys have anything else you really want to add with that. No, I mean, I, so you're saying anywhere can be the Axis Monday. Well, yeah. I oh. think for, for a religious person, like they find it for themselves. And I think like spirituality drives that within people. Like if they don't have it, they're going to create it somewhere. And to say that that's being something created from themselves or it's being created from somewhere else and expressed through themselves, I don't think you can really actually differentiate between the two. And that's obviously kind of something deeper and Right. I just esoteric. I thought it was just Cleveland. <laughs> it's definitely not Cleveland. Actually, I'm pretty sure Cleveland cannot be an Access Monday. It's actually impossible, probably. All right. Agree that's to disagree. Agree to disagree. <laughs> Um, anyways, we're going to wrap it up. And I think on that whole thing, I have a quote to end this all with that is from a person that's inspired me through my life. And that's one Joseph Campbell. So he said, quote, living myths are not mistaken notions and they do not spring from books. 
They are not to be judged as true or false, but as effective or ineffective, maturative or pathogenic. They are rather like enzymes, products of the body in which they work, or in homogeneous social groups, products of a body social. They are not invented, but occur, and are recognized by seers and poets, to be then cultivated and employed as catalysts of spiritual well-being. And so finally, neither a stale and overdue nor a contrived plastic mythology will serve. Neither priest nor sociologist takes the place of the poet-seer, which, however, is what we all are in our dreams, though when we wake again, we may render only prose. So thank you all for joining us here on the Far Center. Uh, we hope to get some more of these in. There'll be more. There'll be more. Until next time. Slide in the he said, magpie, magpie, sitting up there on the telephone wire. Why'd you have to go? Let them die. Magpie, magpie, sitting up there on the telephone wire. Why'd you have to go? Let them die. I was all alone on the open sea, and I saw the stars staring back at me. So if I the only way home, son, we ain't gonna be Fall and I heard the call The albatross wrapped around the neck of God on Star Earth